Um, right. Okay, Zulia, so yeah, let's get to the subject of the day, which is marketing boards. Um, before then, something's making one. No, roof, 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 roof. Yeah. You don't see. How yeah. Did you guys pick that? How did you pick that up? Yeah, I'm clearly now. Uh-uh. This microphone sharp be that too. That's cool. Uh, you didn't peel carrot for there, really. Oh, they scratch the bottom of ice cream bowl. Hello? That's better now. <laughs> see my microphone. Where are they? Are they down? You don't already you see yourself. Oh my god. My microphone. My micro, but you know, the first time we were talking, it was on. But where did you, where did you come up with this stuff? He go be fine. He go be fine. I mean, just that that fan, that fan is that fan is older than many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nice MC. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know it. Okay, DK. <laughs> Uh, nice MC. Nice MC, Abby. SMT. 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 Yeah, nice MC. If no be SMT, KDK. SMT, bro. SMT, okay, okay. For a while, we've been meaning to record an episode on the subject of marketing boards, which I think had come up, uh, you know, sort of as a veiled reference in our previous conversations, but um, became a more overt subject of interest and discussion in the course of our reading group, where we actually had a session on um, the colonial economy you know, in which marketing boards were quite central. So I think we'll have a bit of a historical conversation and then also reflect a little bit about um, economics in a sense, right? Or maybe you could call it socialist economics because I want to think about the role of the peasantry um, versus large-scale agriculture and how to imagine possible futures based on the history um, of marketing boards in Nigeria. But before that conversation commences properly, I think it's probably good that we establish a bit of context, like what are marketing boards, where did they come from? I think I'll just say briefly before I hand over to others that, you know, marketing boards were an institution set up by the colonial state to have a monopoly over certain crops that Nigerian farmers were producing. And these crops would be familiar to anyone who's got a basic understanding of Nigerian history, cocoa, palm oil, and peanuts, you know, which were produced respectively in the Southwest, the South, what is now the Southeast and South-South and the North, um, and were being sold on the world market and were the main source of revenue for governments in Nigeria prior to the emergence of oil. So the significance of marketing boards is that this the government, the colonial government, and then after it, the independent regional governments were using these institutions to 
buy these commodities at prices set by the government and then sell them at the world market price and that way raise revenue. Um, so that's that's what we're talking about today. And um, we thought this is an interesting conversation to have because uh, it sheds an important light on the foundations of the Nigerian economy, you could say, um, but then also uh, has a historical value. And I think begins to shed more of a light on the emergence of what we've been calling the Nigerian scam. Um, so I think that it's a good idea to cover this um, and there's a lot that can be gained from it. Um, before we dive into the historical bits, I mean, maybe it's worth setting a bit of a theoretical backdrop to some extent. Um, so I want to come to OEG first and then hand over the mic to America to give us a bit of history. But OEG, from your perspective, I mean, what is the value of trying to understand these marketing boards as institutions? So what, what do you think they tell us, um, you know, about the nature of class relations um, in Nigeria? I just, I just want you to respond from a kind of um, high level sort of brief summary of why you think it's worth having a conversation about these, these institutions. Yeah, um, if you look at the political economy of like colonial countries, you mm -hmm. see that even for the colonial guys that came in, they are here for a certain resource in your country and facilitation or being able to facilitate access on hindered access to those resources is what keeps the entire, you know, global capitalist framework going. You know, and which mm. has which has a name like globalization in this new world that we're inside of now. You know, so right. that marketing board in itself is an attempt to structure or arrange colonial or neo-colonial economies in such a way that that thread or that flow of access to resource doesn't get broken even mm. after they've removed their colonial hands from the picture, you know, or if it was, you know, um, coming that they were going to go away from there, mm -hmm. you know. So that's to ensure that the flow of groundnuts or peanuts, the flow of cocoa to wherever respective markets was going to in the international community doesn't get stopped based on, you know, <laughs> if you're still finding your foot as a new nation, just ensure that these things come onto the world market at prices that favor us. And then we can now do whatever it is that we want to do in our own uh, central or in the center of imperialism or um, advanced countries. So it's a way of just herding, you know, formerly colonial countries into the production um, pipeline mm. and ensuring that they have continued access to those resources. So they've set up the, you know, those boards. And however you want to, you know, the constitution of those boards inside of your country focusing on class relations, focusing on peasants, focusing on all these things. It's left for you to determine and arrange, though they might still have a huge influence on it, but the ultimate goal is to ensure and facilitate the continued access of raw materials. Mm. That's just in, in that context. Right. I, I think that's a really good kind of overview and background that allows us then dive into the specifics of history. And for this, I want to turn to Emeka initially. Um, you know, and Tsuoji is kind of talking about um, the way in which the colonies fit into the metropolitan economy and the way in which the colonies supported 
um, empire, right? Um, yeah. And it kind of sets that context for the emergence of marketing boats. And because then what you want to add there, like, um, why did the colonial states, in effect, pursue this policy of buying up agricultural produce from smallholder farmers? Yes, sir. Um, what, what, what more can I add? Yeah, so I think, I mean, if I, if I had OG correctly in terms of uh, providing a theoretical uh, background for conversation, the conversation around marketing, but what he tries to do is um, situate um, that time. Right, Megan, you like to say you did fire somehow. Mm, can you hear me now? Better. Yeah, so he tries to situate um, that time period within, you know, um, events around time, what you, we might call the peripheral, uh, peripheral economy to, you know, mainstay capitalist um, centers. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, but I guess what I might want to add is that, you, you know, there was a trigger for this, uh, that the, the trigger right. could have been um, from the you know, time of the Great Depression right into, uh, yeah, from about the Great, during the Great Depression, but shortly before, just about when you had the Second World War. So this time frame would be from the late 20s to about, you know, the early, early 40s. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and that these things were set up by, of course, um, in the case of Nigeria, um, Great Britain, which was, you know, the colonial power at the time. Yeah. Um, it's also noteworthy to note that um, around the time when these things, you know, became staple within the Nigerian political economy, um, the USA had just started to become a dominant world force, right, and was battling Great Britain for for trade, um, and because Great Britain was coming off. Um, but the Great Depression and, and, and the wars that, you know, they had gotten into um, during the Second World War, they had um, trade deficits with the U.S. So setting up marketing boards under whatever pretext that, you know, they claimed was a way of, um, I don't think the word I'm looking for is ameliorating, but um, basically as a way to buffer that yeah. deficit, so, yeah. so they were. It was a. It was. It was always going to be an exploitative relationship where surplus was extracted from the colonies, Nigeria being one of them, to augment for the trade deficit that they had incurred with with the U.S., um, which right. meant that at the heart of marketing boards had to be the component of price fixing. Mm -hmm. um, yes, yeah, so, so I guess. Uh, yeah. I mean that. That's that sets a tone, you know, to connect, you know, OEG's um, theoretical grounding of the rationale behind um, marketing board with the impetus itself. Yeah. 
I agree. And I think that's those are kind of complementary points that paint two sides of the picture. Because on one hand, OEG is talking about the commodities themselves and how the commodities were feeding the industrial process in the metropole, right? Um, and Emeka, you were talking about the revenue from the sale of those commodities by the um, like monopolies that were operated either by the colonial state or by these charter companies. So you could say that the colonial state was benefiting on two, two fronts. You know, the one that OEG described, which is access to these raw materials, and the one that you are describing, which is the revenue from the sale of these raw materials, um, or the taxation, in effect, of, of the peasantry that generated um, revenue on these raw materials. I think the fascinating bit for me, and, and I think this is kind of important background that we should come back to um, in the second part of the conversation, is that this taxation was happening on the backs of ordinary, quote-unquote, peasant farmers. Like, in other words, peasant farmers in what is now Nigeria were generating enough revenue to power a part of the colonial enterprise. Um, why that's so striking to me is that we, and even us on the left, often think of peasants as a kind of backward holdover, right? Um, from a like prior stage of history that need to be replaced by more productive or more efficient methods of organizing agriculture. And this has led to projects like collectivization in the countryside or projects like large-scale plantation agriculture. Um, but in this context, it looks like rather than trying to make those transitions, the state, colonial state in the onset and then the regional Nigerian governments after independence thought that it was fine to just leave the peasant agriculture at the level it was so insofar as you could actually generate revenue from it. You know, which raises the question, is it that peasants are actually productive enough to form the basis of a like growing economy? Or is it just that the colonial state was doing the easiest thing, you know, and was in effect keeping people backwards, quote unquote, um, because it didn't want to actually trigger or invest in um, more, quote unquote, modern or efficient uh, approaches to agriculture. So um, this is maybe somewhat provocative, but um, yeah, I'm really curious as to how you guys would respond to that. Thinking OAG should probably go first. Like, how do you how do you read the fact that this economic system was built on the backs of peasant farmers rather than other kinds of agriculture? Um, I just feel that it's two it's two of those things, it's always both of those things that you mentioned, because nobody wants you to add any value to whatever primary product produce. You know, that's the um, colonial guys. They don't want you to add any form of value, any added value, because that's what they go do in their country and sell back to you in terms of finished goods and products, you know. And then again, it's not in their best interest to rearrange, reorganize agriculture for you. So it's part of a colonial policy to stagnate and preserve backwardness to ensure that's when you're more malleable and more vulnerable to exploits, you know? So you're putting in so much work 
and then the modernization that's happening to your own um, to your the modernization that should have happened or that might happen to your agriculture or farming processes would lead you ultimately to that value adding mm. and they don't want that you know so access to cheap raw materials again is very very important for them and they don't want to jeopardize that so when they start engaging in other forms of improvement of agriculture or arranging it for you then ultimately it doesn't coexist like it's mutually exclusive to their own companies or um whatever it is that they have in the center going on Right. Because then we start modernizing agriculture. We start doing these things ourselves. We start catering to the needs of the people. And if by mistake you have a government that focuses on, you know, catering for the people first and not focusing on cash crops, then that might be a problem, you know. So it depends on the, the, the policy at that point in time, you know, for colonial powers is to preserve those modes of operation, forms of doing agriculture and doing the easiest year and doing the easiest thing. You know, it's the same thing with crude oil and flaring of gas and all these things. They will preserve the most outmoded forms of production as long as they get the resources quickly, fast, and ship it out. They don't care about any other thing along that pipeline, you know. So, and it's the same thing if they come later on and say they want to improve agriculture or with their green revolution, they are going to do what favors the big farm, uh, big uh, agriculture which means a lot of inputs, costly inputs. You're buying seeds, you're buying, you know, a lot of inputs that, that you're putting into your agriculture or your farming process, which makes the process a loss for peasants at the end of the day when you look at the killing off of biodiversity and, uh, you know, the right. inputs that you're putting and the debts that the farmers' financial burden it becomes. So to sum it up, it is not in their interest to advance agriculture for you and to rearrange it for you. And what they want is just to preserve that easy access, the cheapest, fastest, quickest way to get the resources out and not educating your farmer or doing skill transfer or technology transfer. That's it. Right. Yeah, Mega, how would you respond to that? Do you, do you feel similarly that in a sense this was like keeping agriculture backward because of like, you know, but ineffective policy to do that in order to maintain a competitive competitive advantage or do you feel that the peasant, maybe it's that the peasantry actually was able to hold its own, you know, was kind of competitive enough that the colonial state just didn't feel like there was any need to further develop it? How would you, how would you respond to that? I know you like nuance, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, not necessarily. Um, right. Yeah, like, I mean, my first intervention, I said, oh, this was the marketing boards were actually uh, essentially set up to serve British interests, all right, um, during the colonial period. That will change, or that changed further down the lines when these institutions were then handed over to um, the locals, um, mm. nationalists who then took over power from. Um, up, up from the colonialists, but I mean, at inception, I don't think it was. Uh, I don't think uh, Oiji gives these these white guys a lot of credit. You know, <laughs> not them think past that. These guys are morons, really, to mm -hmm. us, to to some extent. Um, right. I think that they had to balance their books in the metropoles, mm -hmm. okay, and. 
to do so, um, they needed to exploit the peasants, right? Um, it wasn't quite a question of technological transfer, you you know. Um, that fight was happening in the West in terms of um, other Western powers that had then become industrial powerhouses too. Like I mentioned also that by the 40s, America had already begun to flex its own muscle, you know, probably later than, you know, countries like Germany, France, you know. Yeah. And all, all of that. So it was it was more a case of uh, making use of the colonies to advance your strength within you know the world economic order or orbit. So um, yeah, yeah, to that extent, I I think that that wasn't. I mean, Oedi's intervention would would be something that came much much later. You know. Um, Right. Just when they were about to pack their bags and, and, and leave. But essentially, um, they wanted to buy cheap from us uh, and sell at the world market. So, it, so, so I think one point to make here is that in its first transition, it wasn't, it was, so there wasn't initially a cocoa marketing board or palm oil marketing board or granite pyramids marketing board. It was, it, it was in essentially, um, a produce control board for the entire West Africa. You mm. know, initially, this this was in 1939, mm. right? Um, the cocoa marketing boards and all of these other um, iterations of it didn't manifest, you know, until the mid 40s, right? And so, it, um, what these guys wanted to do was control the trade, which meant that they shut out um, mm. cocoa sale of cocoa to America first. Mm. Okay, so all trade to America had to go through Britain, you know, and go through Britain, uh, maybe even as finished goods, you know, from processing cocoa itself, or go through Britain. So they shut out American buyers. Meanwhile, America at the time were the biggest importers of cocoa, but they couldn't buy from the Nigerian colony, Mm. which was under, you know, um, which was already subservient to to the British. um, to Great Britain, as it as it were, so it was more about market uh, um, domination, uh, share, yeah, and domination, really, in in its initial phase. Right? Yeah. So, uh, um, so inter-imperial the, rivalry. Yes, I mean that's that's what set the stage. But then further down the road, they'll give all they would then give all sorts of reason for this, you know, which included. Um, industrialization, you know, within the colonies, you know, um, um, they also give reasons of um, trying to balance price fluctuation. So, yeah. because of the seasonality of produce um, in, in the world market, you, there are times when it's sold for higher and there are times when it's sold for less. So, um, if it's sold for less, they wanted to use the surplus, well, they claimed that they were going to use the surplus that was that they got from selling from high to stabilize, you, mm. you know, so that the peasants, farmers didn't bear the brunt of, of low, low um, market price for, for those yeah. producers. Yeah. You know, but but that, all that, all of that was bullshit anyway, as it turned out. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. And yeah, I mean, another rationale was that they needed some money to do development, right? Because of course they weren't bringing money from outside of the colony. Largely, I mean, they were 
extracting money from within to do things like build roads to the ports or build ports or do yeah, even that was faced. Yes, I yeah. there were times when they didn't bring in and there were times when they did bring in. Right, right. And yeah, but then if so sorry, sorry to cut you short, but even no, when they can't. brought in, we would need to go find out whether they were bringing money that, you know, from surplus. So it's not they weren't doing us sure. a favor. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure, totally. No, but you know, yeah, the wider point being that development was another rationale that they had for trying to control revenue inflow and outflow, right? Um, Through the marketing boards as well. I mean, the question I was trying to raise there, before we go further into the history, is around why the colonial state chose to extract from the existing productive system or the, the, the existing mode of production, so to speak, rather than to set up one that in theory would have been more efficient, at least according to a lot of people's perspective, right, on how agriculture works. Why, you know, why didn't they think, oh, look, if we set up palm oil plantations or cocoa or rice plantations, mm-hmm. that, because it's cheaper. consider it's this cheaper. Fact, but consider this fact, OAG. Yeah. Um, to collect produce from hundreds, perhaps hundreds of thousands of, of peasants requires an administrative system, which you're going to spend money on, right? Um, whereas to set up a plantation perhaps requires a little less of that administrative apparatus, even if it might the expense might be around, quote-unquote, land clearance or... Um, labor costs and these sorts of things. Um, but you know, those are, those expenses might be offloaded to a charter company or to merchants, some of whom were asking for plots of land to set up plantations. So, I mean, it's kind of a historical question as well as a theoretical one. And I mean, the cheapness might be part of it, but that will boil down to the exact numbers that were on the table, right? So, I mean, you partially answered it in OEG when you said that, look, there's a competitive advantage question that you don't necessarily want to you to compete with value, you know, like productive enterprises that actually are adding value in the metropole. Um, but might there be other reasons why they circumvented the, the plantation system, which they set up in other places, um, you know, like in Sao Tome or wherever they were doing like sugar plantations, right? Um, mm. To, to focus on on uh, you know just taxing smallholders or uh, taking surplus from smallholders here, what do you think? I'm sure they will have made their own analysis. You know, again, there's there's a mentality that comes with exploitation. You know, if you are having to do one or two, three, four levels to get your money, and at the end of the day, it's going to make yourself your stuff smoother. At the end of the day, you might not see that. Because you are currently just exploiting and your mind is in the moment. It's cheaper for you because of your short sighted. That exploitation makes your view very short sighted. And one, you're not here to transform anything. You're here to, okay, this is what we have on deck. This is what we're going to use. Unless you see, especially when the labor is not coming from you. Mm. When that labor is not coming from you, then it doesn't matter. Let's them arrange if it's cheap labor, if it's free labor from slavery, 
anything, you know, we'll just work with that and get what we can get after all. Because if we balance that input of labor and they're supposed to pay for the labor, then it will become more apparent that it's a loss. But if you're largely not paying for the labor, then to me, it's a sum total. It's a, it almost boils down to a sum gain because you're getting it without putting in any labor, any sort of inputs, but you're just buying, you're just buying it, you know? So you sort of dock having to pay the real reflection of labor and what labor goes into it. And then again, they are not in the business of transforming your agricultural space sure. or developmental anything for you. So let's just keep it that way. Let's get our resources and bounce. It's now left for you. If you have your national government, if you want to develop that left, you know, that left, if you have a revolutionary government that feels like, look, we can't be catering to outsiders and starving and selling cocoa, whatever, you know, so that's another different ballgame. But to transform your economy or to make it advanced or to make it more efficient, I don't think they are in the business of doing that, you know, so they will naturally not do it. Yeah. Right. Any any other additional thoughts on this, uh, Mecca, as to like, yeah, because I, I hear with you to some extent, but on the other hand, you know, colonial states set up plantations elsewhere. So, you know, if you're saying it's kind of inherent to the logic of colonial state, it doesn't explain why they did it elsewhere. So, it, 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 again, again, what they've met, like I said, what they've met yeah. in different places matters. Sure. It could be plantation system somewhere else, or they didn't have anything feasible. So it's now okay to set up a plantation. Okay, let's now make it a big effort. Right. Then even if they set up that plantation, it will just be for plantation now, but it's not, yeah, it's exactly, not going to be advanced. Yeah, here. Not to say that so what they were necessarily technologically more advanced. Exactly. So what they've met here is maybe peasant agriculture, you know, and let's just leverage, plug our pipeline in that peasant agriculture this thing, and export the resources. If they get to another place where the, the you know, the agricultural system is never they feasible or they have to set up something from the scratch or the population, no reach or other, then they might impute a bit of technology inside of it and then make it a bit more efficient to cover out for the gap of, you know, labor with it. You know, so the variables, they're different based on what they meet on ground. So mm -hmm. I feel the explanation for setting up plantation or the level of technological, you know, inputs they put in is dependent on what they've met on ground and what they feel is, you know, works for them at that point in time in that exploitative framework. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't know what, I mean, what I'm more conversant with, you know, if you talk about history and, and, and from a sociological point of view, uh, even though I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I'm biting into side zone terrain now, uh, right. is that, um, so in places where they set up plantation in the Americas, you know, South America, yeah. maybe Latin America. No, but in some of the islands here, like Sao Tome. Yeah, so I, I, I don't want to speak to Sao Tome. Okay. Because I'm not very conversant with it, you, you know. So except this ties into the framework that I'm um, trying, okay. trying to, yeah, use, was that in, in, in the Americas, you, you know, it was more, so let's not forget that slave trade, you know, sure. had happened. Sure, in the neighborhood. Yeah, they, they brought in the labor and that it, it, um, it had to be forced in that sense, okay? Mm -hmm. um, except maybe in Saudi Arabia, this then fits the bill for Saudi Arabia, I'm not sure, but... It does. Um, they brought in the labor. Right. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay, great. Uh, but the sociology of, of events of, of people here in, in, in West Africa was reversed to that. So, in other words, you had people 
slave trade had been abolished, you know, um, maybe a century before that. Um, um, the former slaves had started, you know, some of them had started to make their way back mm-hmm. home, you know, places where they called or thought was home and had taken up leadership positions, especially in, in colonies like um, Lagos, because it used to, Lagos used to be its own colony, you know, at some, at some point. Um, and that, you know, the advances that these guys were making in terms of um, nationalism, the fact of nationalism, um, was beginning to permeate into the hinterland. So mm. they had problems peculiar to West Africa, you know, that can't be generalized. And, and so that's one angle to look at it from. The second bit, you know, that I'd stress is the fact that, you know, I mean, I don't care who buys it, but these white guys weren't very smart, you know, and part of the rationale for what they did was kind of knee-jerk, all right? Mm-hmm. It was also compounded by the fact that by the 1940s, when they had to then set, you know, specific, specifically for nation states, um, now Nigeria being one of them, when they had to then set, move from produce control boards, which was a West African initiative to, um, um, what okay. you call it, to, to, to regional marketing boards as they, as they then became. Um, the, the, the nationalist favor, you know, at the time had reached the crescendo. Mm-hmm. So that by 1947, when I suspect that the cocoa marketing board was set up, India had already become independent. Right. So um, what's the point of throwing up that much energy into something that you are going to leave anyways. So, I mean, I, I, I think that it was, it's a compilation of, right. or constellation of, you know, different factors that, you, that needs to be interrogated. Yeah. Um, it's not, this, this, this is a brilliant question, not just because if it, um, it forces one to, um, to think about these things more, more, more broadly, but you know, it's, um, yeah, but it's essentially because it does force us to think about these yeah. things more broadly, but yeah, yeah, but, um, yeah, it's a nice question. It's something that one might need to go back, you know, and, and, and find answers to within, within the existing, um, literature. But for one, I think that, um, slavery and the way that Nigerians, you know, reacted to it, because they even thought that at some point they thought that the abolition of slavery would have meant um, that migration would move more towards, you know, um, the coastal areas, you know, where um, some semblance of of development had started to, you know, but that, that, yeah, yeah, that didn't happen because, you know, they thought that they they would have filled up roles in in the ports and harbors that they were building. for workmen, but no guys actually decided to go back into farming. I also think that there's there's an issue about land rights that we need to uh, right. factor into. Yeah, into that equation. Uh, the British never really took land off, um, you know, um, in the West African area, certainly yeah. not in Nigeria. Not in uh, they did it. 
Yeah, yeah they, they didn't own. So land predominantly was left in the hands of, if you like, these peasants, you know, in, in, in the hands of households uh, right. and family. Uh, and then to go against that grain would have been catastrophic because this wasn't the time for experimentation. You know, they needed to move and then they moved. Right, right, right. Uh, we, we should turn in a moment to independence, you know, and, and the First Republic. Um, because I, we're already moving in that direction, but I think I want, you know, the, the, your responses have clarified a lot to me about the origin of marketing boards as built on peasant agriculture rather than, you know, desire to transform it in any other direction. I think there's maybe one other factor that I would throw into the mix, <clears throat> um, that is a tricky one for socialists to contend with. And it's kind of emerges from, the point you were making, America, just at the end there about land um, and, uh, you know, th the question of labor as well. And it might be that actually peasant agriculture in this part of the world might have been seen as probably more efficient, actually, than other forms, than kind of large-scale state-run plantation agriculture or even private agriculture, partially because the availability of land means that it's going to be hard to convince people to leave their own plot and come and work on your, your plot, right? Yeah, that, that became a problem later, actually. Yeah. Right, which, which, is, which is part of why, like, appeals by merchant capitalists um, to the colonial state, like British merchants who wanted to come and set up plantation, were actually plantations in West Africa were actually often denied because the colonial state is like, we don't want to go to the trouble of having to find labor for you or having to police laborers, you know, like they probably have their land, so just come plug into it. Exactly. Like you know, like the apartheid state, for instance, in Southern Africa, spends a lot of administrative energy on the movement of laborers, right? Mm. Yeah, Possibly. and even importing labor from other other importing South Afri labor. Southern African countries. Exactly. So yeah. it starts to seem like capitalist agriculture in Lego in 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 Africa. I mean, I'm Zimbabwean farmers, right? Yeah, Zimbabwean farmers. Yeah, yeah, Mozambique. Right. Yeah, but nice one if I call back to um, <laughs> But 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 I mean like. It's starting to seem like, and this is something the colonial state was already recognizing, that large-scale plantation or capitalist agriculture requires an enormous amount of state investment where the existing... Yeah, logistics, yeah, and a logistics. lot of things. And so then it it ends up being that, it, you know, these institutions are sustained by constant revenue, constant inflows from the state. And they're producing goods much more expensively because of all the inputs and such that which he was describing. Um, and then having to sell them when the prices are fluctuating. Whereas peasants are producing cheaply, relatively speaking, you know, often through utilizing family labor. Um, and actually quite a bit more in tune with the land and the seasons, you know. And so ultimately, on balance, might have been deemed to be more efficient than large-scale agriculture, which raises a very interesting question for socialists, right? Because socialists have often thought about, I mean, certainly in Africa, but I, I, I'd say across the third world, um, these collective projects or these large-scale plantation projects 
as the kind of next stage. I mean, of course, the Soviet collectivist experiments were also um, kind of unfortunate, let's say, example of this, or shining example, depending where you sit. Um, but I think this flies in the face of that to some extent, because it suggests that maybe the next stage is actually worse than the current stage. If you see peasant agriculture as perhaps much more efficient than the kind of larger scale collectivizing or plantations, plantation style um, agriculture. Oji, have I sufficiently pissed you off? Um, uh, that's, that's part of what I'm trying to do here. Um, <laughs> or do, you buy, do you buy certain aspects of this? Because if, in effect, I'm saying that the peasants might not be backwards after all. That it may be that they are actually the best producers, given the kind, the land they're dealing with, and given the market conditions they're dealing with here. So, yeah, well, and, and this is something that the colonial state perhaps even was the first to recognize. I feel you've kind of answered the no, question earlier. Yeah, yeah, I feel in the earlier parts, looking at the logistics and what to do, I'm thinking about labor, all that. They figured out, let's just work with what's on ground and plug into it. However, there is always room for development and advancement of your agricultural methods and ways of doing it. There are more efficient ways of planting agroecology on day. There are different things and methods of, you know, ways, inputs, machine, using machinery, improving uh, units, you know, of um, harvest or whatever per acre is something that we should look into, you know. So with the advancement of technology, it is the right application of those technologies into agriculture that will not damage the biodiversity, that will not damage the land, and that will look after the farmer and the well-being of everybody involved in the agricultural process. That's yeah. what we call a complete saying, package. Of are you saying that this can't happen within the peasants? Yeah, because you I'm know, not. I'm, 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 I'm best place to assess. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we can't do. You know, we can't do that in the peasant agricultural me uh, methodology of doing things. Yeah. I'm just saying yeah. that there might be better with that. Now, why we get R and D? That's now why we get. You know, like let's just keep the agricultural process or procedures. Let's keep it as effective or efficient as we can, making sure that there's more yield for the farmer and we're not damaging the environment because with the evolution of agriculture, as we see further down the line, we've seen that monocultures don't come, yeah. you know, shifting, you know, a lot of bad practices don't yes, come. I mean, which is what the plantations know. tend to do anyway, right? Exactly. So, we, which are things, we say, in the long run, if they damage biodiversity, they damage the ability of the land to recover from agricultural processes, the new and modernized one, you know, so, and it is based on that class difference, that antagonistic relationship between the plantationist and all this, you know, the peasant farmer go know how to handle in land, go know, say, okay, make I not stress this portion, make I use this portion, make I divide them, when I know they use this portion, make I put my goat on top of them, make I rotate, make rotation agriculture, you know, but waiting concerning plantation, you won't farm one time, you won't strip the topsoil one time, you won't use chemical one time, you know, you know, care waiting the chemical they do to your underground water reserves. You know, care if diseases they come. You know, so all those kind of things. It is very, very tough. You know, so we are supposed to advance agriculture in conjunction with peasant farmers and making sure that making sure that what we are doing is carrying them along, and we don't do research and making sure say you go with waiting favor them and the environment ultimately. So in in having colonialists come in and do that with all the things we are done, it's not going to happen because they're not going to factor in all those social and environmental aspects. If not, 
you know, look at all the places where they have uh, mine gold or crude oil, all this kind of look into the environment. And a lot of like India too, they complain so much about, you know, destruction of the environment or like yeah. um, farming, farming deaths, farmers enter deaths, they commit suicide or they die by suicide. You know, so there are a lot of factors to consider. And so as I make a agriculture, better agriculture can happen you know, in conjunction with the peasants. So, you know, if we get the states where they listen to the peasants, where they do research and tap into local knowledge that we can advance farming, you know, so that's it. Mm, mm. Maybe you want to add anything before we shift to to um, the First Republic, which in many ways is the exact opposite of the kind of states that OVG was describing. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that I think that we'll get more from you know shifting into the First yeah. Republic because some of yeah. these problems then, like you 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 mentioning, then raise this ugly head. But right. I, I, I so I think that I, I hear OVG and that there is no conflict here. No, sure. The person I have a conflict with is you, um, <laughs> Saeed. I don't understand when you say that um, the colonial government, maybe they had the foresight or they saw the future and, and then understood that peasantry. They don't see any foresight. They just don't um, see them. No, no, they are called these people. Anyway, I'm joking. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, I mean, <laughs> so, no, but this is coming from, from an actual, um, you know, historical source where uh, a British investor, let's call him that, you know, like Sabinus. was seeking to set up a plantation, right? So um, this is Governor Cliff, Governor Clifford, right? In fact, I think oh, it's um, yeah, uh, under Clifford that this conversation happened. Um, mm. it, it's actually... Uh, it's one of the better ones. Right. It was Unilever that, um, in one instance, was trying to set up a plantation. And then there's another example, Temple and Gerard. These people had come mm. set up plantations um, or petition or made requests from the colonial government. And the colonial government, I mean, actually had a very interesting response. I mean, to read aspects of the Clifford statement, this is in 1920. Agricultural industries in tropical countries, which are in the hands of the native peasantry, A, have a firmer root than similar enterprises when owned and managed by Europeans because they are natural growths, not artificial creations. Dot, 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 dot. B are incomparably the cheapest instruments for the production of agriculture. Cheapest. To OH's point. <laughs> on a large scale that have been devised. And C are capable of rapidity of expansion and increase of output that beggar Is ever that in the past. Say again. Is that Bob? Uh, Governor Clifford, I don't know who was his first name. No, 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 I mean the person who's who's giving this account. Okay, no, this is cited in um this is cited in uh Gavin Williams. Oh Gavin Williams. Oh okay. yeah. So then this conclusion yeah, that okay. um actually plantations were not needed to produce taxable export crops because the peasants were already doing so fairly effectively. And the idea was that look, it turns out peasants are actually better rooted and more efficient than Unilever, who, you know, would have required all these government inputs and suddenly the colonial state would have been, would have found itself to basically be responding constantly to requests from, you know, it would have been the kind of Zimbabwean farmer situation where you have to keep giving them credit, water. If there's no sunlight, they'll come to you. You need to police, <laughs> all this stuff, right? 
You know, so I mean, in saying the colonial stage, so much they're going to need swimming pool. So you know, basically, in saying that colonial state had that foresight, it's just to say that they recognize something, which, by the way, the Nigerian government, Clifford, yeah. Clifford at least, yeah, yeah, Clifford, yeah. contemporary period seems to have forgotten, which is that uh, capitalist agriculture in these parts of the world, and maybe everywhere is like much more expensive than than it's worth. So you just have to decide that that's what you want to spend money on and then pretend that you're making profit at the end. Um, because in practice, actually, peasants are much more efficient. Um, which you could argue is something that the First Republic recognized, right? Because the governments of the First Republic, that's the regional governments, basically adopted these institutions. And again, I mean, a lot of Nigerians would be familiar with the rosy aspect of this picture. They will think about the way in which you had these pictures of granite pyramids waiting to be exported in the north, and you had cocoa that was generating enough revenue for action group to be running elections <laughs> and building universities and also building the tallest building in West Africa or whatever, cocoa house in Ibadan. And you know, you had palm oil, um, and, um, you know, supporting um, quite an expansive development agenda in the Southeast at the time as well. So, you know, people will remember that aspect. But what they forget is that this was built on the back of peasants who were not receiving um, those resources, right? Because, you know, th that cocoa, th that uh, palm oil, those granites were being sold for dollars in the world economy. And then rather than transfer those resources directly to the peasantry, they were going in all these other directions. So, I mean, yeah, is there more to add there in terms of the history or like how would you guys react to the fact that in effect, the First Republic leaders, the independence leaders just inherited those institutions without making them any more accountable to the peasants or, you know, without actually improving the nature of the productive process that we've been discussing? And it just goes to show that the class relations, although if you don't enter, you know, it might have entered the hands of Africans, but that class relations wasn't resolved like the antagonistic class relations between who they produce and who they enjoy the benefits or the proceeds of the produce. Right. It didn't, it wasn't resolved, you know, so exploitation just continued. Mm -hmm. You know, so it continued and the farmers would not see too much, the farmers, the peasants themselves, will not see too much of a material benefit or gain, yeah. you know, even with the nationalist government in charge, you know. So that's what I see it as. Like, it's just a simple summary. As right. You know. Yeah. Uh, okay. Here's my take. Um, quickly. I hope, I hope it's quick, though. But... <laughs> He's even hoping he's ever. <laughs> I think that... I think that... that you know, at the turn of independence, right? I think that a bit of of that model, you know, all all out peasantry, mm -hmm. um, um, was was tweaked a bit. So, okay. Um, commercial farms, you know, didn't come out of thin air, and, and I'd say that they yes. started. So they started to spring up here in the first yeah around you know that time, and that at the heart of this was that 
the colonial government then decided to end power because this is so we talk about these things within communities, you know. And so for the average Nigerian who thinks about it today, if you um, take Kashu, for instance, which I'm a bit more conversant with, you would locate it within communities, yes, across Nigeria, but within specific local governments, and then within communities in specific local governments, which meant that there were social relations um, ships that had already existed, you know, prior to that time. So, um, what had happened within, by the time, you know, our own people took over was that you, they then used the marketing boards as a, as a tool for expanding political patronage, Mm -hmm. um, in, in ways that then gave rise to, you know, um, Commercial farmers who yeah. amassed loads of wealth, but could also influence um, farmers within their, own, yeah, within their own community. Yeah. Um, but that, but that, but that then also skewed things, you know, um, and made made administration or even organizing the PISA workforce even more, more cumbersome. But also effectively made it more difficult for socialists to um, um, to in effect make a wrestle, case for wrestle power from 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 them you know using the, the peasantry right. um, I think I was mentioning to Saeed the other day that this would be a good time to hear what folks like Ebi Madnagu and Biodu uh, Jaifu and that cohort you mm. know of radical um Marxists tried to do yeah. in a place called Odeomu um, along the Ife axis, you know, in terms of organizing. You know, and then, then these guys were spoiling for a revolution, but that's, you know, talk for another time. Um, but it, it, why one wants to, to learn of these things, you know, firsthand from their own account would be to see what kinds of challenges that they faced. Sure. Um, because these networks were so expansive that they also began, you know, in the case of, you know, well-established commercial farmers, co-opt even um, the poorer peasants. Right. You know, and then it's probably a good time to note that peasants don't necessarily mean that they were all poor. So you also have rich um, um, peasants. Um, and, and this is something that... Um, um, What's his name now? Beckman. Um, Beckman. Beckman, you know, points out in in, yeah. in one of his um, works. So um, it's 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 a complex situation, and I and I think that um, part of I might be short for saying this, but part of the reason why um, the left in Nigeria has struggled with trying to fashion out, you know, really. Um, smart ways to go around this problem is that they, we don't have, I, I, I get the sense, I often get the sense, apart from very few people, you know, of which people like um, Badi Onimode belongs in that league, there are very few socialists or leftists who really understand the capitalist psyche. Right. You know, and you, you know, can get into the psyche enough to be able to turn things um, around from ground, even even 
even with stealth, you know. So it's always just this, let's lump them together and then criticize them. Let's lump them together. And then those little things that, you know, you can push to your favor, you, you then miss them out. So the point that I'm trying to make is that it was tweaked when, you know, our own people took over and it got better because they, they understood the mentality of the people that they were dealing with. All right. Um, so when OAG makes the case for um, peasant farming getting better, sometimes they set out to do these things. But because of the way that they introduced commercial farming into the matrix and the way it was, so, and this is something that um, side often says. So even when it comes to sharing inputs, you know, this is pre, pre, pre planting, I'll be during the planting season. It usually, these inputs usually go to the commercial formats, like the bulk oh, yeah. of it. So, but that's, that's the thing. I mean, you, when you say it was tweaked and improved, I mean, I think it's crucial to affirm what you did mention, but you know, which is that it, it was where there was like advancements, if you want to call it that. That it was tweaked and improved to whose favor? Exactly, it was yeah, like no, upper level not, team members and family members were talking about. No, I'm not making the case that it was tweaked for the peasants. So no, sure, me wrong. that's it, right? That's, I'm not making. Yeah, yeah, fine. yeah. No, no, no. I'm not making. Otherwise, that case. we wouldn't have had, um, you know, or rather, for the poor piece, for the poor people, and those kinds mm. of. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Votes so, against yeah. early independence taxation. Yes, but you see, the, the truth of the matter was that even the commercial farmers, the, the, the birth of the commercial farmers, which was largely um, propped up by, um, what you call it, patronage networks that politicians had to build using funds from marketing um, boards, was to attract their own pool of supporters even among the farming communities, even within the pizza. Right, right, okay? right. And yeah. uh, the, the, the guys who became rich were the appointsmen within community within peasant communities who then shared, you know, what was supposed to go to the whole peasantry to party people. And also so the guys who, I mean, also the traders, the people who were in between, as in you know, the people who were supposed to uh-huh, the people who were supposedly working for marketing boards, those people also got because the, 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 yeah, yeah, the, 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 the which is the irony because part of the reasons why the marketing boards were introduced initially was to eliminate the middle eliminate middle middle, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but you see, if we even begin to go into traders, then we won't blow this thing out of the water because it got so bad, you know, that having been shot chains through price fixing, you know, mm. price exploitation, you then have, you then had a situation which still persists to today, yeah. especially when you talk about cash crops, you know, for exports, but all sorts of farming, even with subsistence farming, my brothers, is that you then had a situation where, because they were being shortchanged at the farm gate, mm. right? It meant that farming didn't, wasn't even profitable. And this is something that um, Gary sure. Williams goes goes into, you know, so that by 1985, when Gavin Williams was already writing about marketing boards, um, was, how did he go? Marketing, marketing with, with, with or without marketing boards or, or marketing with, with or without boards, right? He was already talking about the debt 
of of um crash cash crop farming. Yeah. You know, because it wasn't paying. You know, so um big big industries, local buying agents, trading traders, um yeah. multinationals were making a trunk load of money and the farmers who were the main producers of these things were living in penury. Well, so, so this goes to OEG's point about short-sighted exploitation. Like the thing became exploitative to the point where it could not even be sustained anymore. So these people then started to shift from producing cash crops to food crops, you know, which maybe in the long run was good because then it increased food self-sufficiency in the Nigerian economy. If you think that's a good thing, I mean, it's debatable. But, um, you know, it goes to the point about this thing being ultimately quite a short-sighted thing. And like, you know, that's the real secret, or that's one of the secret reasons why it failed, which is why we, what we should go on to before we some, before we end. Um, you know, so when people look nostalgically at granite pyramids and stuff, I mean, they often forget that it's not just the end of the regional system that meant the end of that, those, you know, like that form of the economy that, that was agriculture based. It's also the fact that the regional system exploited that agricultural economy to the point where it was forced to go out of business. Mm. It, so the notion that regionalization will re supercharge. Will be some kind of El Dorado. Yes, I mean, the economy more productive is nonsensical. It's the productive economy that powered regionalization. It's not regionalization that created a productive economy. And when regionalization had eaten its own tail, it collapsed. It was always set up to fail. I mean, I yeah. mean from from even from the colonial period, you right. know. Um, so by the time these guys took over power, it was. I mean, they kind of accelerated it, you know. They did um, in in the ways that <laughs> because they, they were busy building um, the tallest building in West Africa. Yeah, in, in, yeah, in the ways that they put it to to use, right? Um, which is why, also, I mean, and this is a, another part of the argument for why it failed, which always brings oil into the mix, but it'll, it'll, right. it'll be it'll be nice for people to realize that cocoa, which had more staying power, which stayed for a bit longer, yeah. by the 70s, right, was dead. In the world okay. market, right? Yeah, yeah. By even, uh, yeah, and then and that then took its toll on Nigeria. But that's always conflicted or conflicted with the fact that it coincides with the rise of or the discovery of oil. Of oil. Now, but yeah. what, what, what doesn't coincide with the discovery of oil, especially because it was in the region where oil was actually even discovered, is the one for palm produce. So mm-hmm. by the 60s, right, even before the Biafran War, because a lot of the, the, there are also people who say, well, that, 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 um, the Biafran War also helped accelerate, you know, the death of of the palm oil industry in in southeastern Nigeria, you sure, know, um, sure. which comprised the South South at the time. Yeah. Um, no, even Emil Okara's experiment, you know, um, which was an adoption or a copy copy copycat of the Israeli system, was already on its dying leg by 1966. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you know, so I mean. Again, sorry, thanks. You raise points and questions that force us to go back and 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 do some work about you know uh, political economy and not 
you know, fall into that trap of mounting off uh, free education. Google <laughs> free education. Uh, yeah. My family and all over is the greatest thing that happens in uh, big things. You know, right. That's mm-hmm. a whole lot of crap, clap trap. Really. Yeah, yeah I, I, I certainly think I certainly think so too. I mean, and so you pointed to some of the factors that led to the, some additional factors that led to the decline there, including the collapse of the world price of a lot of these commodities. You know, in the midst of um, global economic crisis in the seventies, you know, which is is also you know goes to the point you you were all raising that we can't talk about the foresight of the colonial state when it was built on primary commodities, which are, you know, which are volatile. Um, and then you also talk about the rise of oil, which I think we won't delve into too much this time, um, but which surely um, is often read backwards, right? So because the point you make is that <coughs> the arrival of oil kind of built Nigeria out. It's not that oil uh, arrived. <laughs> Nice yeah. uh, 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 behind. Man. It's not, yeah, it's not that oil arrived and then people forgot about granite pyramids. Is that the granite was worthless? <laughs> and that's why they, that's why, that's why it was sitting there in pyramids. A transition, yeah. <laughs> because they couldn't actually, there was no demand for a demand that collapsed on the world market. So had oil not arrived, I mean, we would have been stuck, um, yeah, uh, in an economic crisis, which happened anyway. But at least oil delayed it, you could argue. Um, mm-hmm. So then my final question when it comes to this question of marketing boards concerns the left. And, you know, America was going in this direction already. But um, it seems like a lot of the left during that period um, slightly fetishized the marketing boards or believed that, look, if we seize power, we could use the marketing boards for something better than what they're being used for. You know, I think the model of using the surplus to do edu- free education in the Southwest probably bamboozled some people. Um, but they also saw the marketing boards as the kind of state institution that can direct the economy, right? So of course, for, for certain kinds of leftists, that's quite attractive. Um, what I mean, a lot of what we read to think about this period in history was very critical of that kind of leftism. I wonder where you guys sit on that question. Like, is there a use for institutions like this that might set prices for agricultural commodities, you know, might quote unquote market agricultural commodities on behalf of the peasantry or on behalf of indigenous producers? Or do you feel like these kinds of institutions have no place? And here's what's very interesting about this issue is that the critics of marketing boards from the left found that they actually were saying very similar things to neoliberals, which were emerging in the 80s, and also demanding that these marketing boards be abolished, right, as part of the structural adjustment process. In fact, structural adjustment is what ended up abolishing the marketing board. So if you disagree with those leftists who were saying that marketing boards could be used for something progressive, then just bear in mind that you might that might force you to agree with the neoliberals. But anyway, I wonder how you guys. Would ah, are you sure? <laughs> should we complicate this a, a bit more? Go yeah. for it. Um, this is an interesting one, and 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 please remind me in case I forget. Because something that I, we might have to you know flesh out more, you know, outside the time allotted for this this um, this bit, right? Um, 
the so from where I stand, and and this is this comes to me because I'm sort of like a player in in in, in these things, you know, nowadays. Um, yeah. And then the way so the way I think about it is <laughs> so when you talk about agri business today, you know, which is a term that's more that resonates more in the modern age. More yeah, and then you talk about startups, you know, which is something that's become, you know, the go-to um, terminology used by, um, if you like, um, I don't want to even say neoliberals, neo, neo say, what do you call those people? The Let's call them investors. The neoclassical economists and, okay. and all of that. So I mean, startups in, the, in that sense, right? Um are doing what marketing boards used to do. Right. Right. Um, right. Right. So, <clears throat> right. So, and, and, they, and they don't have a choice. So it's not a question of they want to deal with commercial farmers, not especially in a country like Nigeria. 80, 70 to 80% of the food produced in this country, whether, you know, in terms as, as uh, from subsistence farming or as a result of um, farm, farming, you know, cash crops, are produced by peasant farmers. Mm-hmm. Peasant farmers between the poor and the old. Now, 20% is what's produced by commercial farmers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that can't even service any markets, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whether you're exporting commodities, um, be that sesame seeds or cashew nuts or, or hibiscus um, flowers, whatever the case is, soybeans and all of that. Mm-hmm. So what do these guys do? They've gone back, in my own opinion, and I might be wrong, they've gone back to the marketing board model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, they're not state-owned. And I mean, that's that's where the question arises. Oh, oh okay. Is, okay. No, I, I hear where you're coming from that. Like, okay, okay, people who set up monopolies. I mean, setting up monopolies, every capitalist dream. Because, of course, mm-hmm. capitalists actually want to be aristocrat. They want to be feudal. They don't actually want to be engaging in buying and selling. They want to just be able to be collecting money. You know, everybody wants to be mm-hmm. done. Right? You know. Mm-hmm where the state pays you, you have dominant market share, so you determine price. So it's not about comp- competing or innovating or all this nonsense, right? So, okay, Dangote model. No, but side, but side, hear me out. I wasn't even doing, right? I'm not just saying... No, I, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to dwell too much on the entrepreneurial marketing boards that exist, which people call startups. I mean, I, mean, I think it's very it's very nice that you raised that, but I no, want no, to... The point that was- no, but you're shutting me down because okay, the point sorry. I wanted to make wasn't about you know the entrepreneurial then you know side of it. It was okay. what they use what they used it to do in terms of um, how the relationship that they then establish with you know um, peasant farms, which if the marketing boards did and did effectively, mm. you know, that there might have been a case for it. So, right. what do these guys do? They they make sure so it's, it's some kind of um, aggregating scheme, you know, where they have pizza farmers within their network. Um, the reason why they do that is they while they buy the produce off these guys, you know, after harvest, mm. right, they also extend certain kinds of services. So where you, I mean, you might talk about it in, you know, in the capitalist sense, but what they do is that they make access to input. Um, the grant farmers, yeah, access to inputs. They, some of them are already beginning to take on 
the the problem of of debt, you know, which middlemen have um, middlemen and traders that that pa- practice that middle middleman middlemen and traders profit from. Yeah. So it will interest you to know that 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 tendency of traders advancing money to um, <clears throat> farmers for next year's harvest. For next year's harvest that started from the period from the era of the marketing but still you know is in practice yeah, of course today you know at, at, and, and and it's an exploitative relationship so, but some of these startups you know who we even have humane faces are doing this bit of you know making credit available to these guys we also know that yeah. um that's very interesting i mean I, i'm gonna have to cut you off because of time but yeah, all right. it kind of sounds like you're saying to put it mm-hmm. provocatively that mm. the left can learn a lot from neoliberals if we want to do marketing votes. Um, I'm, even, I'm, I'm even saying that depending on who was making the arguments at the time, yeah. I'm saying that neoliberals have even learned from some of the some leftists who were more clear-eyed about, about the um, use of marketing boards. Yeah, of marketing boards from in, but in again, their critique of... Yeah, but again, remember that... that these these leftists were talking about the use of marketing boards by the state, so they weren't talking about setting up entrepreneurial enterprises, which brings no, I agree. back up yeah, right I agree. for yeah, OEG, I agree. which is like you know, say the revolution happens, do you, <clears> that, <throat> you know, it makes sense to set up institutions that can set prices of agricultural produce and do like collective marketing for peasantry or. Do you think it's about allowing a kind of, so to speak, market socialist system set prices for the? I mean, it's a huge question. I'm aware, but yeah, mm. I, I guess uh, I wonder how you respond to these state institutions that did exist and now exist in the private economy. Like, how should socialists think about these kinds of institutions that exist, kind of to create monopoly conditions? You know, either supposedly in the interest of the peasantry or in the case of the entrepreneurs, to do things more efficiently? What I think is, it's the nature of the states and the character of the state that will determine if right. these um, marketing boards will be some sort of fair representation and like so, sort of just right. compensations for the farmers. That's social organization and, um, you know, interaction between farmer and the state and the type mm. of, you know, you know, um, economic basis, which organizes, uh, things matters, you know, because socialism or socialist construction, our projects, we can go ahead and use the marketing board. We see, say, okay, no, truly, you know, fairly compensate farmers. How well can we now twist it? Should we let the, let the farmers have like a bigger say or should we look at the cost of, yeah, you know, should we look at the cost of taking it out, you know, put the state input and then what we want to do, how to fix the price, you know? So to me, socialism is not a fixed way of say something. It is that constant yearning towards egalitarian or fair relationship in society because I don't put my labor inside something this yeah. is not the cost of how to, from farm to fork or from farm to sheep, whatever. How do we, what goes into it? What will be a fair justification for the farmer, you know, and the peasants? Are we going to organize the peasants in a much more, you know, um, like coherent uh, organization 
when yeah. we say they go fit tell us what they want, then the states go factor them out, sample them. Okay, this is this. Let's come to an agreement as to this year. This now the amount we go into the uh, process. This is what you be compensated per acreage or per hectare. You know these kind of things. It's, it's not straightforward because I know one talk say now the way be this, but yeah, if right, the right. state is honest and considers genuinely you know the interest of the farmers then it will constantly be open to rearranging or editing what sort of organization no matter what in one column we feel color marketing but we call them anything yeah but just make sure that the farmers or the peasants or the people that are putting in the labor are getting a fair share or reasonable share you know as to the benefits that they're supposed to be getting you know so okay. that's it for me so so i mean you you may not be too far from America if, if I was hearing him as saying that in a sense it's not that the institution themselves the institution itself is doomed but it's just the use you put it to exactly kind of thing or, if you or, get caught last week and caught person if you get caught last week and clear from or the person uh, who, the person who wields it exactly and what so who's, like what's who, whose interest are you marketing uh, 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 hey, whose interest are you marketing yeah you know so well, my own issue. and what and, and what or what goes into the thing the product or the produce you go analyze all those ones and then yeah. be in charge of you know representing it properly for the farmers you know but okay as to conclude i guess my own issue with institutions like marketing boards is that like the thing is that no revolution will change society root and branch. You go still get people where they prefer the previous system. Yeah, definitely. You know, so, definitely. And even within the party hierarchy, not even to talk of the bureaucratic machinery of the state, those people go day. We go still. There'll be resistance. There'll be resistance to change. So then, if you bring about those institutions, the existence of opposition capitalist opposition within society which you cannot totally explain <laughs> probably shouldn't totally explain, will mean that there's always a risk that people within and outside of the state will use those institutions for a kind of exploitation that even the market cannot always match do you know what i mean like it creates the possibility of the super exploitation that even the market it, it, there's there's no way there's no way where you know there's no way we're going to wipe out a lot of all these tendencies yeah. Within a decade, two decades, you know, even for some countries where they proclaim socialists, whatever, there's yeah. still, you know, there's still capitalist relations, there's still, you know, go change. But as long as there's that constant yearning and constant pushing, I'm fine with it. Right. I'm fine with it. You know, it won't change overnight. It won't change overnight. You know, but the state must be seen clearly and unambiguously to be on the side of the people and right. the people that are put, doing the work. That's my own. That's my justification for say something day on its way. To being socialist, right? You know, if we are using the state model, yeah. if no be like uh, you know Chiapas for Mexico or whatever. Yeah, man. So, yeah, so, which is also something that we should maybe consider at another point is like, what are the kind of non-state models of um of uh, socialized production? Um, yeah, but that's a different conversation for another day because I think we've probably exhausted this conversation for today. Thank you.